Well, hello. I'm sure oh, uh, most of you will know me, but if you don't know me, my name is Caroline, and I'm part of the team here, and mm -hmm. I'm delighted to be Hi. speaking with you today. Uh, this week we have our first term, uh, first this term even, this is the first week of our new term, and um, we are looking at the Jesus Lifestyle book written by Nikki Gumbel. Um, it, my copy has that cover. This is the new copy. I think it's exactly the same book inside. So, well, I'm hoping so anyway. So uh, if you would like to um, read along with us, then the book is easily uh, accessible from Eden or Amazon. Uh, but if not, that's fine too, because we'll hopefully be covering each chapter every week with us anyway. So we've got a number of different people speaking. So I'm kicking off and then next week will be somebody else you'll be pleased to know. So here we go. Uh, this book is about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's about uh, which Jesus did at the beginning of his um, ministry. He had been baptized. He had been in the wilderness. He had just started um, teaching uh, around and he'd started doing uh, the odd sign and wonder. And then this Sermon on the Mount comes and uh, it contains three types of material. It has the Beatitudes, uh, which are the first few verses, which are the blessed are bits, uh, the ethical admonitions, and then the contrast between Jesus' ethical and uh, ethical teaching and the Jewish law. The importance of this sermon is outlined by three phrases. So it, the Sermon on the Mount can be found in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. I should have said that first, really. Um, so uh, at the beginning of the passage, it says um, there are three phrases, and it says that uh, Jesus sat down. So when a rabbi sat down to teach, it usually meant that he had something of great importance that he wanted to teach and share with the people around him. Uh, in the Revised Standard Version, it says that he opened his mouth, and that um, translates as that he was opening his heart. So he was teaching the people what was on his heart. And the fact that he was on a mountainside. Now, mountains play quite a big part uh, in terms of they're always associated with revelations from God. So if we think about Moses, uh, he went up to Mount Sinai and received the law from God while he was up a mountain. So mountains are quite important as well. So then Jesus sits down, he starts to speak, and he starts teaching in an amazing and radical way. And he starts to break this myth we have about finding happiness. So the first bit we're looking at is the first four Beatitudes. I'm just, oh, hold on. Thank you, Becky. It should go up on screen, actually, but it might be a little bit small, so I shall read it. I can't. There we are. So um, the word that they use, it could mean happy, um, but it, the Jesus uses it as in the blessed form. The word that he starts is makarios, which is um, Greek and means blessed by God or having received God's favor. So it's a stronger word than happiness, really. It's more sort of internal, holistic. So the first four Beatitudes that we're going to look at today is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay. So the first one, let's look at the first one. The first one is blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, usually we think of poor as having two kind of meanings. So one is lacking wealth and uh, needing to work or, you know, needing something. Uh, And the other is desperately impoverished, dependent on others. And this might seem like a, a weird thing to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. But it doesn't mean not having a spiritual backbone. It's, it's more like the opposite of spiritual pride, you know, that, well, I've led a morally good life kind of thing. That kind of thinking only comes when we compare ourselves to human standards, not when we think about God's standards. It's that, well, basically, my life is fine. It's more about looking at our lives and recognizing that something is lacking and that actually something needs to change. I'm sure most of us will realize that that something is Jesus. We need more of Jesus in our lives. The more we need to get to know him, the more we realize just how far uh, we fall short of those standards. But the great news is that through Jesus, we are justified. We become the righteousness of God. So we are reinstated to relationship. Our lives can be fulfilled. But Jesus is enough. He's the only one who can satisfy all of our needs and to lead us to that place of contentment. When we feel spiritually desperate or a complete failure and there's nowhere to hide, we turn to God and then we come under God's rule and reign for now and all eternity. So we need to learn to humble ourselves or to be poor in spirit in order to see ourselves in the bigger picture and to know that our God is in control. And actually, while we were singing the song, um, Surrender, it really struck me that um, that first verse, it says, I'm giving you my heart and all that was within. I lay it all down for you, the sake of you, my king. I'm giving you my dreams. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving you my pride for the promise of new life. And I think that's what it's about. That's how we become uh, humble and um, poor in spirit if you like it doesn't mean that we're actually poor it just means that we know there's something bigger out there so moving on to blessed are those who mourn now I'm quite an emotional person I have the habit of crying at everything anything that touches me I'm in tears adverts anyone cried at an advert before crazy um you know a good film all sorts of my back on oh sorry I don't know what happened there beg your pardon um but mourning I think we'll all agree is not the ability to cry at anything it's about that um crying with grief you know that deep rooted feeling inside in the Christian world there can be two types of thought the first is that Christians should never be happy the world and its weight should be on our shoulders and we should all walk around looking like it is and that we shouldn't be happy. There should definitely be no laughter and that we shouldn't enjoy anything. We'd be in big trouble here, wouldn't we? <laughs> Thank goodness. But the opposite to that is that Christians should be happy all the time, which is quite exhausting anyway. But um, they should always be happy, always filled with the joy of the Lord, which is actually something slightly different than being happy. 
never letting anything get to them. But that's not real life either, is it? In Ecclesiastes, there's a, a passage that it's, it's called, I've, we were looking at it last night, and the first bit in Ecclesiastes says, life is meaningless. It's such a cheerful book. But anyway, <laughs> excuse whoever wrote that, apologies. Um, but anyway, um, there is a passage that says there's a time for everything. And it goes on to say there's times for lots of things. And this particular verse, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So there are seasons in life, there's time for all of these things. But I think um, when we're mourning, it's, it's encouraging to know that God's in with, with us and that we will be comforted. And it's never wrong to mourn the loss of those we love. You know, it's heartbreaking. And Jesus did the same thing. He wept over Lazarus. Paul wept over the enemies of the cross. There's examples throughout the Bible of people weeping through grief. And it's absolutely right and okay that we do. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And there's a quote from that that says, that those who mourn see that for all the jollity on board the ship is starting to sink. It's about recognising that uh, there is a bigger picture and although this bit might be okay, other bits might not be. And I think, you know, we should really be affected by things that go on in our world and perhaps we should be weeping more about the state of it. Are we moved to tears when we see horrible things in the media? Do we cry over human trafficking do we cry over horrible abuse cases? Do we cry over terrorism, over natural disasters? I think there's a tendency to become a little immune to it and become a bit clinical about it. And I think as we're one step removed, that's very easy. But do we need to be crying more? Do we need to be you know, a bit more empathetic? I don't know. Do we need to mourn more? The good news is that when we do mourn, we are, in need of, well, we are in need of comfort, but we are comforted by the great comforter himself, the Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus sent him, sent us even. And when he comes upon us, when we're in that state, we can begin to cry. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. I cry a lot um, at anything. But... Sometimes we can be crying for any reason. Sometimes we might not be realizing why we're crying. It can be something deep inside, something spiritual that God is unpacking within us. It might be uh, past hurts. It might be that we're crying over wasted opportunities of some sort. Or it might be that we're just crying for a sense of spiritual poverty. We just want more. Or we feel that we're not enough. But the Holy Spirit brings us comfort pours out his love and his compassion and Jesus is enough for us so that's the second step to happiness that comes from the grief that drives us into God's arms the third beatitude is blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth now, meek is one of those funny words that we don't often use these days again. And we can often think that it's, you know, someone who's a bit wet behind the ears, really. It's not a nice expression, is it? But um, we can think, uh, yeah, we can think that it's not a, a particularly good word. 
But actually, meek is the opposite of arrogance and self-seeking. It ties in nicely with the humility we were talking about earlier, the poor in spirit. The Greek word for meek doesn't mean weak or feeble or spineless. It actually means gentle and considerate and unassuming. It means broken, but not in the same way that a glass breaks and shatters. It means broken like a horse. Very different examples, but it's where great strength comes under submission. And submission doesn't mean that we're being a doormat. It just means we are coming under authority. There are two characters who are described as being meek in the Bible. There's one in the Old Testament and one in the New, but you have to go to the King James Version to find it. So in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says that Moses, who led the Israelites out of captivity, is described as being very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. But Moses wasn't weak. He was a man who met God face to face, who had constant communication with him. In Matthew 11:29, in King James Version, it says that Jesus says, Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And, you know, again, Jesus wasn't a weak man. Not in that sense. But they're both described as meek because they were both under God's control. They had submitted to God's authority. Jesus, in particular, had submitted to the Father, to his earthly parents, to the law, and even Pilate. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. When we find ourselves in this position... When we have a right view, we will inherit the earth. We need to remember or recognize that everything around us is a gift from God that we know we don't deserve. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, um, it says that what do we have that we haven't already received? So everything we have, we've received from God. It's all his and he's given it freely to us. So knowing how to receive what God wants us to give in this life and the next, he will give us everything. So that's the third step. And the fourth step, the fourth beatitude we're looking at, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I think in the West, we don't really know what it's like to suffer real thirst and real hunger it's hard to imagine what it must be like to pray for the next meal I literally pray for the next meal live hand to mouth to eat just once a day when we're, if we're lucky or to have to search for something that's drinkable we, we can all relate to feeling a little bit hungry having hunger pains and you know a bit thirsty and needing a drink but I, would, I don't think any of us would really know what it's like to be that desperate I mean, I've met a few people in, when I've been to Uganda, you know, and heard some of their stories, and people have to live like that. And it's hard to imagine when we live here, where everything's in abundance, what it's really like. It's shocking. It's very humbling as well. 
that kind of need causes a desperation, a kind of all-consuming passion, which is suffering, a desire or an ambition to find what they're looking for. How do we feel when we see someone on the street who is homeless or marginalised? Do our hearts go out to them? Do, our, do we feel that we should be jumping on the bandwagon, helping them in some way? Or do we feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit inconvenienced, that they might have interrupted our day? Maybe we feel helpless, or maybe we feel called to act on it. Actually, we should feel longing like this for our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And this should be our true desire, to long to be in God's presence, to long to be with him. And we shouldn't settle for anything less than 100%, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We should be longing for that kind of intimacy and closeness that we know God's heart for us. But the problem comes from the fact that we're just not that desperate. We might have an attitude of, Lord, make me holy, make me completely holy, but not quite yet because I'm not quite ready for it. I think we can all slightly relate to that, don't we? And we often do things kind of in our own strength because we can. We have all this available to us and therefore we're not so fully reliant. So I think this bit encourages us to really um, reach out to hunger and thirst for God. And when we do that, he will find us. He will, do, he will fill our hearts. So that's our four steps to happiness. It's quite short and sweet today. But just to recap, so the first one is blessed is the poor in spirit. It's about humbling ourselves, about recognizing that we are part of something much bigger. It's coming to him in humility and saying, here I am, Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's about, you know, um, giving it all to God allowing him to change us and um, there's times for weeping, it's times for, um, yeah, just being open with him. And blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. It's that submission, it's surrendering all to God and it's about um, acting in his way, doing what he wants us to do. And then it's about searching for him, yearning for him, and drawing into his presence and uh, asking him to fill us and building that intimacy with him. And where we seek him, we will find him and he will find us. And that's an amazing blessing to have. When we're truly desperate for him, we will find him. And Jesus says that God will fill us and we will be satisfied. And when we're satisfied we will be truly happy. That's me. I'm done. Short and sweet today. But um, there are a few questions uh, that will be up on the screen. So we'll go through to the church. We'll go into our small groups. If you're new and you haven't got a small group, uh, come and say hello. I think Becky, who's disappeared, she's there on the floor at the back. Becky will run a welcome group um, as either in the side chapel up there, but she'll tell you where she wants to be.